Let me read uh, from First uh, John four, chapter four, and uh, John writes here. He says, "Dear friend, friends, don't believe all people who say that they have the Spirit. Instead, test them." See whether the spirit they have is from God, because there are many false prophets in the world. This is how you can recognize God's spirit. Every person who declares that Jesus Christ has come as a human has a spirit that, that is from God. But every person who doesn't declare that Jesus Christ has come as a human has a spirit that isn't from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that you have heard is coming. That spirit is already in the world. Dear children, you belong to God, so you have won the victory over these people because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. These people belong to the world. That's why they speak the thoughts of the world, and the world listens to them. We belong to God. The person who knows God listens to us. Whoever doesn't belong to God doesn't listen to us. That's how we can tell the spirit of truth from the spirit of lies. Dear friends, we must love each other because love comes from God. Everyone who has love has been born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. God has shown us His love by by sending His Son is only Son into the world, so that we could have life through Him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the payment for our sins. Dear friends, if this is the way God loved us, we we must also love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is perfected in us. We know that we live in Him and He lives in us because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testified to the fact that the Father sent His Son as a Savior of the world. God lives in those who declare that Jesus is the Son of God and they live in God. We have known and believed that God loves us. God is love. Those who live in God's love lives in God, and God lives in them. God's love has reached its goal in us, so we look ahead with confidence to the day of judgment. While we're in this world, we're exactly like Him with regard to love. No fear exists where His love is. Rather, perfect love gets rid of fear, because fear involves punishment. The person who lives in fear doesn't have perfect love. We love because God loved us first. Whoever says, I love God, but hates another believer is a liar. People who don't have, who don't love other believers whom they have seen can't love God, whom they have not seen. Christ has given us this commandment. The person who loves God must also love other believers. Well, good morning to all of you. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and we now cross over that line and we're into the fifth chapter. So we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, walk in love, walk in love. 
children naturally imitate their parents. And one of the first times I realized this is seeing someone, a child, uh, with a toy phone. And if you, you watch them, and they will act exactly like one of the parents. And I won't say which one, but whichever one is on the phone more than others. But and it can go either way, I know. <clears throat> But they sound just like them. They act just like them. And they'll, they'll walk around and do just like, you know, mom or dad and uh-huh, uh, you know. And, and it, it's, you know, great to watch them because just being around mom or dad so much, they pick that up. And so God designed us to imitate. That's how we learn a lot of the daily functions uh, for life. But we don't learn everything just by being around someone or just by being around our parents. Some skills and character traits don't come just by being around them. They take work. It's still imitation, but the child has to make an effort. They have to submit themselves to the parents' mentoring for some skills and character traits. Uh, That's how we learn skills like cooking or music or uh, fixing things. It's also how we develop character. Those kind of things, character traits, are they take a. We have to intentionally try to learn them and maybe imitate mom or dad. So it may be, Mom, teach me how to have your patience with my children. Dad, teach me how to deal with a difficult boss. Paul's going to exhort us today to learn a specific character trait from our Heavenly Father. You see, God wants us to be like Him, like like Himself. So, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul will instruct you to walk in love by imitating the sacrificial love of God and Jesus, and God the Father and Christ. Walk in love by imitating the sacrificial love of God and Christ. Or we could say it another way, walk in love so that the family likeness is obvious. So we've come to a new section here in Ephesians. So let's see where we're at. So we're going to look at the outline just briefly of the book at a high level here. So the first two points, if we go ahead and go to the next there. Thank you, guys. Um, the, the first two points uh, is the division, the main division of the book. Ephesians falls into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is that, that foundational part where, uh, section where he lays out theology, rich theology for us. And then chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book, is how he says, okay, now let's put all that to work. Let's apply that. Okay, so he says first, discover the vastness of God's love in calling you, the first three chapters. And then learning that, he then calls us for the rest of the book, 4 through 6, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, as he said there in chapter 4, verse 1. That was the first thing he said, moving into the application section. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, what he does from that is he breaks it down into different ways in which we more specifically are to walk. And so we saw, they took first of all, is walk in unity. And he dealt with that in the first half of chapter 4. The second half of chapter 4, which we just finished, walk in holiness. And now, in chapter 5, we take up a new way in which we must walk, walk in love. And that will be in the first six verses of chapter 5. Breaking that down, 
falls into two parts as well. First, what we'll see today in the first two verses, walk in the divine kind of love or in godly love. Walk in the divine kind of love. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll take up the, the second half, steer clear of all types of evil. So what we find here in the first six verses of chapter 5 is another put-off, put-on pair that we saw there a string of those at the end of chapter 4 after he introduced to us the whole idea of you have put off the old man, the old nature, you have put on the new, and then let me tell you what you're supposed to be doing with that. And he gave us those put-off, put-on pairs that, that we're to be doing throughout our Christian life. And so we have another one here. Put on godly love, if we just kind of boil it down briefly. Put on godly love, verses 1 and 2, and then 3 through 6. Put off the fruits of self-love. Another way we could look at that. Put off the fruits of self-love. So what Paul does here, though, and one of the reasons why I've broken it out a little differently, and I think Paul has a shift in his thinking, it's another put-off, put-on pair, but he expands upon it a lot more than he does the other pairs. But he's also taking up a new way in which we are to walk. So walk in unity, walk in holiness, and now walk in love. So look with me at Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we'll stop there for now. The first main point is become imitators of God here in verse 1. And this word, therefore, uh, what it does is it serves as a bridge between what we just covered, walking in holiness. And so he says, walk in holiness. He spells that out. And then he says, therefore, okay, be imitators of God. And so that's a bridge. So that being imitators of God, we talked about last time, that's what walking in holiness was about. It was, it was being like God in all those different ways. And he says, okay, so if you missed that, I'll make it clear here. Therefore, be imitators of God. But now I want you to imitate God in another way, not just in holiness, not just in unity, but now in love. But we should see that as he makes this bridge, walking in holiness leads to walking in love. We shouldn't have just this this drive to be holy and we're done. That's not we're not done. We have to do that. That's important and, and critical. But. We're not done. We have more to walk in. We have to walk in love. We have to be transformed in how we love. So the first verb here, again, is a command, just as we've seen in these all these pairs, uh, the put-off, put-on pairs. Uh, this verb, be, uh, as I, in the translation I read, is better translated become. He uses actually a different Greek word, genomai, uh, and, and it's become. So become imitators of God. And as present tense, it means it should be continuous action. And so we could say it this way, steadily advance toward perfect imitation of God. That's the idea here. Per, steadily advance. Keep working at this, at growing, so that you're shooting for perfect imitation of God. Now, you won't r- reach that in this life. Yeah, the perfection. But it should be our goal. We're every day shooting for that. In, imitating God is to be your lifelong goal. And you might remember back in chapter 4 when he established, laid out for us this whole idea of put off, put on, is he said there that we were created in the likeness of God. And so here now he's, he's kind of spelling that out more. 
Part of that was be like God in holiness. And you think here, you know, what did God say? Be holy for I am holy, right? And, and so that's what we were covering. Now, he says, okay, basically, he's going to say, be loving because God is loving, right? We were created to imitate God. And this word imitator, we get our word mimic from it. Uh, it was used for someone like an actor who would would copy or imitate someone else. And just like children imitate their parents, so God calls His children to imitate Him. He wants us to display the family likeness, that resemblance, so that, you know, how... Uh, your kids sometimes they may look like you one or one or both, and but I'm thinking more about the way they start acting like you. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, right? Because they will pick up everything. Uh, they tend to learn the bad habits first, right? But the kids imitate us, and just as the way they imitate us, their parents, we are to imitate God. He is our Father. And I want us to notice, and we're going to camp on this for a minute, the required mindset here. See, there's a certain mindset that goes into this. As you're imitating God, we have to think rightly about it. And he says, as beloved children. Okay, so we're going to break that down a little bit. But don't imitate God to become his child. That's, that's wrong thinking. We don't imitate God in order to become His child. We imitate God because we are His child, right? We are His dear children. And so with that in mind, with that mindset, we're to imitate Him. There's two aspects He brings out here of this mindset. The first is this. He, he says, as beloved. And we'll stop there. As beloved. This is what I promised you last time. That beloved is an amazing word. And, you know, it's one of those that we kind of just breeze past when we read it. Because it's used not only of that we're God's beloved children. Um, but then we'll use, or the writers of Scripture will use it talking to them. You, you beloved. But it's an amazing word. In classical Greek, it referred to an only child who enjoyed all of their parents' love and attention. You see, so as an only child, they never had to share mom and dad's love. They never had to, you know, feel like they had to compete with their siblings or anything like that. So there, because there were no other siblings. It was just them. So they had 100% of their parents' love. And so you can see how this word would also sometimes be used for, for, to mean being contented. Because the child has that security because they're, they're the only child. You know, I don't have to share. I've got the security that my parents will love me and not divide it or maybe even pick a favorite over me. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament... This word translates a Hebrew word for only son. Think about uh, in the story of Abraham and Isaac and in Genesis 22 when God calls Abraham to offer up his son. He says, your only son. And that's what it is in Hebrew. But it uses the, the Greek translation uses this word 
which we typically take as beloved. Okay, and so if you're reading it, you would think, okay, your beloved son. But those ideas are, are both interwoven there. This Isaac was was Abraham's only son in the sense of his legitimate son that God had given him and promised him. And so it's fitting that this word, beloved, is used in the New Testament of Jesus as God's only son. Because Jesus has a unique relationship to his father as his only son, In the, even though we now, believers, are considered his sons. We're not that in the same sense that Jesus is. As Jesus has eternally had that relationship with God, God being the Father, Jesus being the Son, they had that particular relationship for all of eternity past. And so we would say, yeah, I can see that, saying, you know, that Jesus is God's only Son in this special sense, right? Think about when Jesus was baptized. A voice came out of heaven saying, it was God the Father, this is my beloved Son. And then that happened again when Jesus was transfigured, when the three disciples were with him and he was on the mount, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, and and they saw him transfigured there. The same voice said the same thing. This is my beloved Son. It's this word. Okay, This is the unique one that, that has all of my love. He is my only Son in that special sense. And so it's easy for us to see how, yeah, that word fits exactly for Jesus and the love that the Father has for Jesus. That fits. What's astonishing is to find that same word used of us. Think about that. That's incredible. That God would would have, the Holy Spirit would have Paul use this word, which could mean and often meant only son, used of us, each one of us. Now, you may be thinking, okay, John, yeah, that sounds nice, but I know I'm not the only believer. I know there are millions and who knows how many millions and millions there's going to be by the time history is done. So, in reality, God has to divide it up. So, if there are you know, 500 million Christians, then I get one 500 millionth of God's love, right? We think that way sometimes, maybe not in that detail. But you have to remember, in that way, God's not like us. Because He's what? Infinite. God is infinite. He is able to direct His love to each one of us as if we are His only child. Because He's God. We can't do that. As a parent, we have to divide our love between our kids in a sense, right? Now, we say we love them the same way, and hopefully we do. But we can't give them an undistracted, undivided attention and love, right? Because we have, you know, more than one child oftentimes, to share that. But God is infinite. And it's just astounding to think that He would use that term of us as if we were, each one of us, was God's only child. That's how God is able to love you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
believer never say, Father, I, I know that you're really busy with other believers who, and, and many of them have problems much greater than mine. Don't say that. Because what you're doing is you're undermining his, his infinite nature. You need to exalt him in his infinite nature and say, Lord, I know because you're infinite that you do love me. You can and do love me as if I were your only child. And I praise you for that so I can pour my heart out to you, never thinking that you're like, okay, you know, I, I know you got, you've got some needs and issues and I, I'll help you, but let me, I, I've got some other folks I need to work on over here first. That is never going to happen with God. You are able to, if you will, the way we think, have 100%. His undivided attention and love. And, and so that's the beauty of this word. Don't underestimate His infinite nature. He gives the same intense focus as if you were His only child. He's never too busy for you. He never gets distracted from intense personal love for you. You are His beloved. And being so intensely loved ought to compel you to love intensely. It ought to transform how you love. I mean, we don't love intensely, probably. I mean, not like we should. And, and we're all at different, you know, points on that scale, if you will. But some have made a lot more progress. Others are still working, you know, moving in that direction. But we need to love intensely because he's saying, imitate God. So whenever you, you know, someone says, hey, brother, sister, I, I need some help. Can you help me? We need to give them the undivided attention and love. You know, I know there's a lot that's pulling us in different directions. But we need to give that uh, as best we can. Develop a reputation for loving so that you become known for that. In your intense, intimate, one-to-one relationship with God, imitate Him. But there's a part two of this manner, this as beloved children. So we talked about as beloved, now as beloved children, the word children. The word here, children, uh, is, was used of little children. It's, it's, more, uh, it's a more tender term. It refers to uh, more of the helplessness of little children uh, as opposed to using like the word sons. It was used of little children who were dependent on their parents. So, so as you know, when your baby is first born, they're dependent 100% on parents, okay? Uh, they would die without you, you know, it quickly. And they, they're that way for a while. And then they start getting a little bit of, uh, you know, good independence, like they can walk now, so you don't have to carry them everywhere. Um, and then they get to the point where they can, you know, dress themselves and stuff. <clears throat> But this word is describing children who are totally dependent on their parents. And so it describes a close, tender relationship to the parent. So part two of this manner in how we should love God is that this tender, dependent relationship with God or in that tender, dependent relationship with God, imitate Him. You see, so you come to God and you say, okay, I want to imitate you, Father. And you think in terms of, you know, you love me with that undivided, as if I'm your only child kind of love and, and the intensity of that. But then there's also that, that tenderness. 
and dependence on Him and say, Lord, I, I want to imitate You in that, knowing that's who I am in relationship to You. So what these two points mean, as I said earlier, you're not to imitate God to get Him to love you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He already loves you with this tender, undistracted love. And so what I want you to take away from this is rest in that. Rest in the security that you have in God because of the kind of love He has and imitate Him. Okay, second point. To imitate Him then, walk in love. Okay, so we've been talking about love already, but now we're going to get into it more fully. To imitate Him, imitate God, walk in love. Verse 2. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How then must you imitate God? These are two parallel commands. Imitate God and walk in love. And so imitating God is walking in love. Now, it's more than that. It's walking in holiness, too. But it is walking in love. Okay. And the Greek word used here for love is agape. And it's related, obviously, to the word beloved that we've already seen. Let's talk about agape. We've, we've covered some of this already in Ephesians, uh, but I want to go over it again. <clears throat> agape, or godly love, is not driven by impulse, not external stimuli. You know, th- we think in terms of external stimuli. It's like, well, you're so beautiful or handsome, I, I love you. This is not that kind of love. Okay, Or, or well, I, you can do a lot for me, and so I love you. That's more typical of of natural love. That's not what this is. Godly love deliberately chooses to act as a free choice. In other words, we're not compelled by the loveliness of the recipient or the worthiness. Wow, they're so worthy, I have to love them. That's not, this is a free choice where we say, I am going to love you. And so it's not prompted by loveliness or worthiness in the recipient. The recipient doesn't have to deserve it. They don't have to earn it. And and so as we look at the way this word is used in the New Testament, we find that it seeks the highest good of the recipient. It says, okay, what is it that you need? I will meet that. That's biblical love. And so to put it simply, godly love gives and serves. And so we'll look at some of these verses, but think about uh, what is godly love. For God so loved the world that he gave. It gives. And, and you have that giving and serving in a lot of different passages uh, that you find this word love used in. David Pallison, uh, who's with the Lord now, he was a counselor. He taught counselors. <clears throat> he wrote, love and this helps us to see what, he, what we're talking about, this kind of love. Love engages your neighbor's specific personal needs and struggles. Love encompasses many things, attitudes of patience and kindness, actions that meet material needs and, and offer a helping hand. And love includes honest conversation, candid verbal problem solving, in contrast with the judgmentalism, avoidance, bitterness, and aggression that comes so easily. And so to kind of think about what I was saying earlier about godly love, godly love is not impeded by the obstacle of an unlovely recipient. In other words, 
don't don't think in terms of, you know, I I'm just too bad a sinner. God can't love me. You're underestimating God. You're underestimating his love. Because your unloveliness, your unworthiness, they are no obstacles for God, for his love. Godly love, as I said, gives and serves. It imitates God. Uh, if you'd like, turn with me to First uh, John. We'll go back to what Avery read, and I'll just call out a few things there. First John, chapter three, verse sixteen. There, John says, "We know love by this," and, and we're seeing here this idea of imitating Him, right? That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you see the idea of imitation. Okay? And chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, not first, right? But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, and He did, we also ought to love one another. And then, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. We learn this other-centered love by imitating God. We learn it from Him. We don't, you know, look out into the world. We don't go to psychology. We don't go to sociology. We don't and say, well, how can I love? Or look at other religions. No, we look at God. We learn from God. We imitate Him because it is His kind of love. And so back here in Ephesians 5, verse 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. Okay, <clears throat> We're coming to here in just a moment the kind of love Paul is talking about. And he's going to tell us that Jesus is our supreme model. What did Jesus himself say, if you'd like? And you don't have to turn here. You can listen if you want. But uh, John chapter 13, Gospel of John chapter 13. Verse 34, uh, you, you probably know this one. Uh, it's a good one to memorize. A new commandment, Jesus talking, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then in uh, John 15, verse 12, saying again from Jesus, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You, you see that, there's that imitation. I loved you, and just as I loved you, you need to love one another. Okay, There's that idea. So we have to pattern our love after Christ's love. And why, why, is, why is that? Why did he shift from God now to Christ? And, and for the rest of the verse, he's going to talk about what Christ did. Well, if you think about the, the teaching of Scripture that about Jesus... Um, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, John 1, uh, the apostle tells us in verse 18 that Jesus, he has explained him, the Father. 
you see. So when Jesus came, he, he, he lived out and taught in a way that he, he displayed the Father to us. And then, of course, uh, Hebrews 1.3, that he's the exact representation of the Father. Okay, so, so that's why Paul now moves to talking about Jesus more specifically, because if you want to know, now we can look in the Old Testament, we can see a lot of ways that God, the Father, if you will, loved us, or there it was oftentimes the Trinity without us really knowing that's who he's talking about, and we assume the Father. <clears throat> and, but yet, even more specifically, we kind of drill down into some very concrete ways in which we are to love by examining Jesus in the way he loved. And then that idea of the, the, the sacrificial love comes out, which he's going to develop here. So how did Jesus love us, those of us who trust in him? How did, how did he love us? Well, our third main point is this. Jesus is our supreme model for walking in Sacrificial love. Jesus is our supreme model for walking in sacrificial love. Again, verse 2. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he says first, you know, Jesus loved you. And he says, let me tell you how he loved you. He loved you by giving himself up. Talking about his work on the cross. He gave himself up for us. And this idea for us, it brings out the other-centered nature of his love. How when he loves us, he, the things he did, they were for us. And again, that's the substitutionary atonement. But it also is this idea of an other-centered love. It's not Jesus didn't look and say, you know, I, I think you guys could do a lot for me and you can make me pretty happy, and you know, which, which that was not at all true, right? So he couldn't have said that, but he wouldn't do that and say, I see a lot of potential in you. No, he says, I see a lot of need. You're, you're, you're dead in sin. You're without hope and, and without God in the world. But I want you to be in my family, in my father's family, and so you have a need. And so the, this other-centered, serving, giving love says, I'm going to meet that need. And that's where we come to the cross. That's what he's talking about here. This for us tells us that he is seeking our highest good, our highest good, which is the need for salvation uh, at, at the first level. And then there's other things that we need. <clears throat> but think about this. And you can meditate on this when we come to the Lord's Supper. But um, while Jesus was dying on the cross, yes, he was paying for your sins if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But all the while that he was dying, he was loving you. And that's staggering. And remember, he he's infinite. He can think about... Oh, all of those that God has given me, and I'm paying for their sins, I love them. I'm doing this because I love them. And that, that's what we need. We need to keep hanging on to that idea. And don't just think of it as a transaction, which there was, it was a transaction. He paid for our sins. He settled our debt. But it is so much more. It's a display of His love. That He was loving us while He was on the cross. 
And think about some more verses of Scripture. I'm just going to read them for you. You've got them on the slides uh, that I sent out. So, <clears throat> Paul said that the Son of God loved me, Paul talking personally here, he loved me and delivered himself up for me. There's that idea, for me, for us again, right? And he also said, God demonstrates his own love towards us, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, in other words, before we could ever make any kind of claim that, hey, we're worth it, we were sinners, we were dead. He said, Christ died for us. Jesus said of himself that the good shepherd lays down his life, guess what, for the sheep. And then he also said again about himself, greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. So, we talked about Jesus had to die for us, for us. But why did he have to die? Why did he have to die for us? Well, Paul goes on to tell us he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He gave his life as, as an offering when he died on the cross. Uh, and again, if you're, you're enjoying flipping around through scriptures more today than normal, but Hebrews chapter 9, if you turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to look at a few verses there in chapter 10 as well. <clears throat> 922. And so kind of think with me here. Uh, why did Jesus have to die? Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, the Mosaic law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So you see, blood had to be shed in order for God to forgive us, in order for Him to be able to save us. Blood has to be shed. And you say, okay, well, there were, you remember we've talked about thousands and thousands and thousands of animals that were shed there at the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So, I mean, what about that? Okay, well, look at chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so blood has to be shed, but it can't be, in order to fully take away sin, it can't be blood of animals. Okay? Now, Verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 10. Jesus here talking about, you know, he's come to do God's will. And then he says at the end of the verse, uh, the writer says about Jesus, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So uh, he came to do God's will. And then verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you see, Jesus is able to pay for our sins. His blood shed is able to pay for our sins. And then verse 14. For by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, those who have been saved by His blood, by His payment, you see. So blood had to be shed. It couldn't be animals. It had to be Jesus. And He has died in our place. This offering is also called here a sacrifice to God in Ephesians 5.2. Jesus made the supreme sacrifice, one that could actually take away our sins. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs, they couldn't take away sin. They could just temporarily cover those sins until Jesus would come and take away the sins of all of those who believe in Him. 
And so using these two terms together, offering and sacrifice, what Paul is showing is that Jesus gave him when he gave himself that way. He fulfilled all of the offerings and all of the sacrifices that deal with sin in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled all of them. So it's not like, okay, well, we'll still do these offerings and sacrifices. No, he fulfilled them, those that that deal with sin. He gave his life. And so we say, love's cost reveals love's depth. You see how deep love is. You know, you can never accuse Jesus, his love of being shallow. And we sing rightly, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, right? Because as we think about this this theme, what Jesus has done for us, we have to come away, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And if you want to know how deep, then look at the cost. It cost the Son of God his life. And then Paul says that Jesus' sacrifice was made for a fragrant aroma. In other words, it would be pleasing to God. That's the idea of that. God would be pleased by it. Um, and, and I want to say, too, he says there that he made this offering, this sacrifice to God. And, and um, th- there was a theory that's been around uh, for a long time in the church Um it's called the ransom to Satan theory. And I think I've talked about that before, but uh, that's a heresy. Okay, that's false teaching. Uh, because people, you know, they think it preaches really well. I mean, but it's heresy, you know. It doesn't matter how it preaches, all right? <clears throat> but they say that, well, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he, he paid a ransom to Satan to free all of us because, you know, we were under Satan, you know, in the sense of him being the, the God of this world and all. Uh, so Jesus had to pay a ransom to him. That is not at all true. The Bible never says that. In fact, in passages like this, it says he gave himself up as a sacrifice to God, not to Satan. You see, because we had sinned against God, not Satan. And so it's God's holiness that had to be satisfied. The payment had to be made to him. We were, you know, Jesus paid, the gave the sacrifice to God to redeem us. So it was a a fragrant aroma to God, pleasing to God. In other words, it's acceptable to God. Well, that's that's how our love is to be. Not that we have to go die on a cross for each other. He's not saying that. When he talks about giving up our life, he's talking about dying to self for each other. Giving ourselves for each other. Because it's, it's not that often that we have to die literally for each other. If you need to, that's part of it, but... That rarely happens, especially today. We need to pattern our love after Jesus' love. We need to to follow His His example, His pattern. And love is often hard and costly. And I know, when you think about it, you know what it's like. I know I'm not the easiest person to love. Okay? And you have to work at loving me. Right? Right? I think I heard an amen there. Um, <clears throat> but the same is true of you. Right? We have to... It's going to be costly sometimes. And it's sometimes going to be very hard. But that's how it was for our Savior. And so it, it might be hard. It might be costly. It will be sometimes. We have to do it anyway. 
if we're God's children. Because we're now in that family and Jesus is, in one sense, our brother, right? Because we have the same father. And we're all in that family, so we've got to follow the same pattern. We have to be willing to sacrifice. And love is very often sacrificial. Remember, it's this whole idea of giving and serving. It's not what can you do for me. It's how can I love you, serve you, give to, to meet your real needs. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next time because we're going to talk about the fruits of self-love. Um, and we'll compare the two more so then. But for now, <clears throat> work on making your love sacrificial when it needs to be. It doesn't always have to be sacrificial, but sometimes it does. And there may be a sense in which it always is because you have to put aside what you're doing to, to, to love someone, to meet their need. It just might not be as hard sometimes. Do it as a fragrant aroma that rises up to God's throne. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? He was in jail. He had pretty great physical needs. And they sent an offering for him. He refers to that at the end of the letter. What they did, that sacrificial gift, he called it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's what our love ought to be. When you love each other, it should be sacrificial. And do it in a way that it will rise up to God as a soothing aroma. See, we don't, we don't, we're priests. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. Man, woman, young person, if you're a believer, you're a priest. And we offer up sacrifices, and that's one of them. They're not sacrifices for sin. Jesus did that and it's done. But we still offer sacrifices. But make sure you do them in a way that they rise up to God as a soothing aroma, well-pleasing to God. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, Again, as I said earlier, the obstacle of our loveliness, our unworthiness, is no match for Jesus' love. And, and let me just say, you know, some of us get stuck on that idea of, well, what about the greatness of my sin? Or what about the weakness of my faith? Don't get stuck on that. That should not be where your attention goes. Because if you put your trust in Jesus... Focus on the greatness of His love. You can acknowledge, hey, Lord, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, it's weak. But get off of that and focus on the greatness of His love. You love me, you're able to love me, and you do love me because I'm your child, even though I have weak faith. Or because you have great sin, say, Lord, okay, I know, my sin is great. But you're able to love me, and you do love me because I'm your child. Your love is greater than my sin. Your love is greater than my weak faith. That's where I want you to encourage you to put your your attention. Not get it off of yourself and get it on Him. Because that's where you will find your help. In love, Jesus desired to bring us into His family. And in love, He gave His life for us so that He could do that. He met our greatest need. We were dead in sin. We were without God. Without any hope. And Jesus met that need for all who believe in Him. Let's meditate on these as we come to the table.